You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the cinematographer for Radioactive, Anthony Dotnantle. I read your paper. It contains some exceptional science. My instinct is that there is another element. You think you found an undiscovered element? Science is changing, and the very people who are running science believe the world was flat. Leave my laboratory. If my science doesn't speak for itself, then you have gravely misunderstood it. I'm going to prove them wrong. We all thought that atoms were finite and stable. Well, some of them are not. I have called this radioactivity. Our discovery could cure cancer. Extraordinary. You changed the world. Our work's been nominated for the Nobel Prize. The commendation only mentions my name. You stole my brilliance. How dare you take their applause? This is bigger than both of us. I just wanted to do good science. There are those that say that radium is making them sick. The question can be raised whether mankind benefits from knowing the secrets of nature. I have been haunted my entire life trying to understand the impossible. This is my fight, and I will win it. It's been a confusing week because we've got camera march, so I've been trying to talk about another film that was quite hard to do. That was like a year and a half ago, and now we're on Radio Active, so I have to start sort of, you know, <laughs> waking up the dead. Well, uh, <laughs> what are you going to be working on next also? Are you, are you shooting right now? I've been. I shot a. I shot a, a very small anarchic, independent uh, feature in London under lockdown um, for a small budget um, about predators, sexual predators called victims, which would be very interesting. And I've been doing a couple of commercials, and I've I've gone straight into a six, seven months, eight months job with Danny Boyle now, which I start up, which is difficult because of COVID, you know, traveling back and forth. But we're basically in London. You know, shorter alongs. We're doing a massive thing about uh, the pistols, sex pistols. Should be great fun, I think. Oh, okay. Well, obviously, I and everyone, including the Academy, uh, loves your collaborations with Danny Boyle. Well, that's so nice. that's very exciting. We've been, we've been, we've had fun together. So yeah, Radioactive is uh, is an interesting film visually, and it's um, you you had some fun with it because it's something that could have been really stuffy to look at. You can be really honest with me, Will. You, can, you must be really honest with me because never in... I mean, you checked out my TV. It's probably 40 or 50 films. Never as a film... You know, all films are weird beasts in their own right, but never as a film puzzled me more than this because I'm aware of its kind of arrogance and, you know, conceit as sort of independent, a bit arty film, but I just felt it was such a strong piece in its own little world, completely in its own world. And I was really, really pleased actually about my visual collaboration with Marjan, who I love dearly. You know, she's mad as a hatter, but adorable and, <laughs> and no fool. And, you know, to support, number one, a woman, well, just a great filmmaker, but luckily enough, a female, you know, director from a very strange background who's pushing the envelope in different ways. I, I kind of really came out of it trying to be objective, but aware that it was a little bit dodgy in places, but I thought it was kind of great and never will. But I'll be really honest with you, never have I met, and I'm not fishing for your comments, flattery or critique, but I've never 
felt more, partly because of the lockdown and the silence around about the premiere, any other film meeting so much strange silence. Which I know it means some people don't necessarily not like it, but don't quite understand it or don't don't turn on to it. And I know it's good visually, I know it's interesting, I know it's different, and I know Majan is telling something really difficult about a very complicated subject. And I know, and I know um, you know, Dear Rosamunda is really good, but it's not coming across. But maybe we just got chopped at a really critical time, you know, with COVID. I don't know what it is. But I'm just being honest with you. So that's where I'm at with it. I love it dearly, and I'm proud of it, and we can talk to the cows and I'll ask you whatever you want, and I'll be honest. But that's how I feel about it. It's a strange reception. Yeah, I think, um, I think especially kind of in that it came out in that early period of COVID. I think that's exactly it. There was a bunch of content like Tiger King that people are getting caught up with. And it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But yeah, I uh, I was pleasantly surprised, I, I think, when I saw it. Um, and I think, obviously, that's in no small part to what you did to it visually. There's some interesting, specific aspects about the film that make it stand out. There's a big sequence in the middle of the film where Marie Curie's husband passes, and she has this kind of surreal um, hallucination sequence and that's one of the big moments in the film. I, I was curious, kind of, you would tell me a little bit about what went to, you know what I'm talking about, where she's surrounded by the dancers. Yeah, that's where and people she... wake up. That's where, we, that's, where, that's, where, that's where people wake up and, hey, yeah, uh, separate, you know, safe distance, social distancing, bums on seats. No, uh, I know what you mean, yeah. It, it, comes, it comes after quite a long, you know, sequence, from start of the film, where there's, there's a suggestion that the film is going to be kind of a little bit unusual visually, but in fact it's quite slavic in its approach to presenting character and the history of the relationship between them, you know, before he dies and up to his death, you know, and the ambition and the establishing of the the lab and all the sort of you know all the sort of the the the, 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 the tasks she had to through to the very male audience around her that she was capable of scientist. That kind of is probably going on for about 25 minutes, I guess, until this guy goes and kicks the bucket and gets run over by a horse. And then it does, you know, that gets you emotionally, basically, Will. It's not a tactic. It's just, just what happens. So suddenly people realize that one of the main characters that you're just beginning to enjoy just gets killed. And, and she gets thrown into this kind of um, delirium, which is a visual delirium. And it's a, it is a kind of style, not break, but it's a, it's a development in the film that takes you into another abstract land and I know this film's gone back to forth and cutting and maybe it comes as a shock. It, it is a sequence that is about the inside of a brain as much as, you know, a, a biopic can do that. And it's it's about loss and it's about fear and it's about the dynamics of chemistry and our our hopeless helplessness in a physical world where we just, you know, arrive as a baby and die as a die as a, an old person and, you know, we become atoms again and eventually just you know, it's about atoms and our DNA. And so the film kind of goes into that weird journey of death and the funeral procession and the colour, which is associated very much with what her, her reason for living has been, of, you know, experimenting and researching in those chemicals. And then, of course, it kills. Uh, and, and the accident, it wasn't the chemicals that killed her husband. It was just the fact that they were beginning to doubt and fear what they were in the process of... of creating and working with and they I guess it's a warning, it's a foreboding warning of what, what is to come and her vulnerability as a human being. I guess 
that's me as a photographer speaking. And it was a joy to do. And I know it's been bounced around in the editing quite a lot. I know the editor has enjoyed it. You can feel he wakes up <laughs> and really goes out of there, which is all beautiful. And a lot of it, much of it is in camera. Uh, it's, it's lovely to do stuff like that. And I, 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 any cinematographer rejoices in, you know, trying to speak more in pictures and space and color and light and less in words. And, and uh, Majan is a, is a disciple of that. So that's the joy of working with him. It's just about getting the balance right, world, but that's really what activism is about. Well, so uh, you mentioned a lot of the work is in camera there. So there were a few specifics I was curious about. Number one, tell me about the uh, the dancing woman whose whose dress is lit. Tell me a little bit about how you did that. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, basically, what I, she's a historic figure who basically, I think, forgive me for being a little bit rusty about names, but um, I, I know you're talking about. And there's a scene quite early in the film where they're where they're courting each other, and she's up on the stage, and, and there's this extreme. I find a really beautiful sequence actually where I kind of used the dancer as the key light and I blasted uh, three different color temperatures or four or five different color temperatures light directly onto her costume, which would then bounce back into into the audience, into the darkness where the audience are watching. And that was the print, in principle what she did. She basically danced in light and did these extraordinary rotating movements and was a real figure in real life. And what I wanted to do was kind of, and it wasn't necessarily planned in prep, but we just, we decided but as we got to shooting that we'd bring her back as a sort of it's kind of a dance of death. So it's mm-hmm. kind of again a sort of shamanic movie. But it's it, we decided to bring her back for that um, funeral sequence where she's backing away, backing away and you know, surrounded by this extraordinary figure, which I really adore, you know. So she was an extraordinary real life person. The, the woman is a dancer herself, I forget her name too, she's beautiful. And uh, it's based on a very, very true life performance by this fuller with her name. And she experimented with lights and movement in a very that incredible early period in the you know the early 1900s where the car was being invented, the telephone was coming, people were beginning to dress more interesting, artists were exploding in excitement. You know the whole world was like in a modernist period. You know it was a fantastic time I think to live in, and also a very dangerous time to live in. And she was then just you know with all the science research which I knew much less about and Marjan introduced me to, you know, it was an interesting time. She's kind of a symbol of that, I guess. But she comes back to kind of envelope her, I guess, in her morning in that sequence as she walks back and across the pages. It's abstract. It's a kind of Greek tragedy almost, isn't it? Yeah. I was also curious, I mean, there is some pretty interesting production design work going on here. Uh, it, there was one moment that stood yeah. out, and I was curious about your involvement here, which is in terms of tragedy, right before uh, Marie's husband is about to give his speech in Sweden, he's in a room surrounded by exes. And I know that's, you know, in classic visual storytelling, that's kind of the symbol of something bad's going to happen. Uh, were, you, were you involved in the location scouting or the production design with some of the rooms like that? Yeah, just remind me. She's surrounded by what? Just remind me again. It's in the space where, is it before she receives or before he receives? It was before he's about to speak, and like I know he goes out on stage, but in the room where they're where they're like, "Are you are you ready?" and he go and he says, "No, I'm not ready," and um, he's he's surrounded by X's on the wall, and I thought that was really interesting. It was just kind of a a very dynamic way to stage that yeah. scene. I was curious if that was kind of your handiwork. 
I mean, Michael, Michael Carlin is an, I, I shot my first experience with Michael Carlin, the designer, was, um, was uh, Last King of Scotland with Kevin McDonald. And um, then I did The Eagle in Scotland with him with Channing Tatum and Jamie Bell, which was on film. Uh, that was also Michael Carlin. He's so amazing at going to a mad place and, and constructing some amazing world. So a lot of it is, is down to Michael. And, you know, we did quite a lot of camera together with him, and he's, he's a clever guy. That is basically trying to enhance the whole stiffness of, of the Swedish world and his, 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 his developing nausea and his coughing blood, right? And he's yeah. about to go in there, and she's sitting, she's sitting with the man who will become her lover, uh, in the in the laboratory, waiting, restless, and asking if I remember rightly what time it is in Europe, in yes. Sweden, is that right? Yes. And they travel through the train. They, uh, it's not the things where she travels in the train, which I shot. It's the scene where he's waiting there and he, he costs blood, and the guy comes out and asks if he's ready. I mean, it's basically just design. It's, it's really just it's just looking for that stiff, still very very male dominant male-governed world of the Nobel Prize, you know. It's really that. That's all we're looking for. So it's in colours and it's in textures. And I think when he goes out with a speech, I use some abstract lenses and kind of destroy the space around him a bit because it's this, this terrible contact between him and and, 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 and Marie Curie because they have this sort of bond of extraordinary contact, really, which is why it's so sad when they die. Yeah, I was curious about never that. Really apart. That was half a good thing. It was our assumption that we were never really apart until we died, and he still lived with her. And that was the idea that way after he died, that he stayed with her and she felt him. And that's the deceit, that's the conceit, and the you know, depending on pretentious, but you've just got to do these things when you make films and trust it. You know, you just got to do it and go for it. And the people who love it love it, and the people that fall away, they probably fall away for some reason early in the film, and we lose some people on that. You know, but that's the that's the conceit of it. If you get what I mean. It's it, it and it's a beautiful love story. Um, you you mentioned that that scene where he goes out to speak, and I don't know if you used a tilt shift there um, to kind of close in, but I saw you did that a, a few times in the film to kind of destroy the edges. I was curious a little bit about that effect that you use throughout the film. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very naughty at destroying the edges. 
Um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a well-behaved, well-brought-up boy when it comes to that. But I mean, I, I kind of know when I do it and why I do it. And I'm, I'm, I wish I could find some other tools. But I'm definitely trying to develop new ideas because you see quite a lot of my work and it's sort of, it rears its head. But there's usually a reason and it's never the same reason. Uh, I was just talking earlier today in Camerimage about The Undoing, which I, I shot uh, with Nicole. And there's quite a lot of it in there, which is about the sort of, that's not what we're going to talk about now, but that's about the undermining violence behind these rich people in New York and, and you know, the, the lies behind the truth of everything that Nicole is saying or we don't know. It's, it's a, you know, that's, that's the reason for me doing it in, I'm really breaking down the DNA of the truth of the film negative in The Undoing. And that was the idea for that. In, in Radioactive, it was more about, I don't know, it was more, more from a sort of physiochemical point of view, I think. You just... I just write something. Sometimes I confess I'm in a difficult location where I do not fall in love with something I can't change. <laughs> so I try and a little bit more discreet, just pull, pull the actors a little bit out of that world without jolting the audience. Um, in the case of Radioactive, it's, it's mostly about enhancing an element of the picture that I really want the audience to feel, either a face or an emotion in a face, like an eye, like the speech, or like when she's making her speech and she's seen from the back holding the hand up and asking the audience to be quiet. In fact, there's a, the reason I've got the camera is because in, in the scene shot, he was standing there as a ghost behind her. You know, he's always with her and guarding her. So that's one of the reasons that these kind of swing shifts come into play, because I'm usually using it with a plan to introduce something else. And then sometimes something happens in the editing, so it goes a bit chaos. But um, that's basically an already answer. It's more of a physiochemical... Um, Hard to explain what I wish I could, I wish I could really say exactly. Um, I have to think about it. If I get a brilliant idea, I'll write it to you. Give me a minute. I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll look back at my notes. I'm, I'm sitting in my room, it's a complete chaos. I've got all my, my scripts, all my mini scripts, and I'm frantically looking as I talk to you. Thank God I'm not on Zoom for, the, <laughs> for my notes on radioactive. I'm, I'm really, I'm in lockdown. I'm stuck between England and Denmark trying to service Danny Boyle and look after my family. and I don't know whether I'm going on Monday or Friday. I'm doing camera margin, which is all a jumble today. So I'm not completely as lucid as I sometimes can be for it. Oh, don't, don't worry. If you see me lead a interview with a, a gaping hole and you want to know, <laughs> just make it down to me and I'll, and I'll, I'll revisit it. Okay, well then, let, let's, let's talk about something that I, I think will immediately jump out to your memory, which is tell me about some of those flash-forward sequences like the Chernobyl one, and the Nevada nuke test site, because those are some of the big visual moments. Yeah, I mean, they're there. I mean, when I read the script, it was like a poem. It read almost like a, it read almost like a poem, and there were not many writers that do that or want to do that or dare to do that, and there are not many producers who dare to produce it. And um, it, it read even more like a poem when I read it. But, you know, and one of the main and first presumptions that we make of the audience is, is that they accept that we jump forward and back in time, which is in fact a fascinating talent that film does have, because when you get people in the audience, especially a film in the cinema, you, people are stuck, they're paid and they sit there and they, they give themselves to you. And Danny Boyle is a, a prime example of this. He, he's more and more obsessed about, you know, sustaining a time and, and the upheaval of time and time slice and things like this, which we're exploring at the moment. And what Marjan wanted to do was obviously work with the conversations of which is a classic cliche, you know, the, the, the ups and downs of Einstein, you know, the great, you know, the great brilliance of, of a brain like Einstein, what he could create, and in the hands of the wrong people, as, as Pierre Chewy says in his reception speech, you know, at, at, 
at the uh, the Nobel Prize Award, you know, in the hands of the wrong people, you know, it's fatal. And basically, it's a visual echo of those words that are in themselves enough, but it's beautiful to, to be asked by a director to illustrate that. So, you know, we thought, well, let's do that. Let's remind people in as poetic and as dramatic and as political way as possible. You know, Chernobyl existed. We went there. It's horrifying. I've walked to, I've walked Chernobyl, you know, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, we all know across the world what we're talking about. And the incredible things that have been done, you know, hand in hand with that, you know, for cancer research and saving people's lives. It's, a, it's an eternal, eternal dilemma for human beings to accept that, like the H-bomb, you can get in the wrong hands, you can, you can do some, you can do as much damage as you can do good. And that's, that's the reason for doing that. And it's just about trying to tap into that notion and that emotion at the right time in a in a linear narrative that is in many ways also I wouldn't call it a biopic, but the audience are wanting to follow, you know, a historic, incredible figure, played very well obviously by Rosa Munda, but the kind of they kind of jolted out of the linear time of film, you know, for that reason to just trigger some kind of some kind of reaction I think in the audience. It's a it's a poetic device that Marjan has no problem about utilizing because she's she comes from graphic arts. You know, she comes from she's a very, very intelligent, emotional and extraordinarily scientifically intelligent person, which surprised me. I thought she was lying, but you know, she did explain <laughs> the periodic table to me and I really thought I don't believe you woman. I but I'm so incredibly <laughs> stupid and I thought I was thrown out I was thrown out of class at the age of thirteen for cheating. So she she took pity on me but that is her also playing with the, you know, the chemical language of cinema. I think, I think that's what we're doing. Playing the logic, you know, and the destiny. And, and that's what film can do. You get it right. Well, so one thing I, uh, in one of those sequences, I noticed you, especially in recent years, I want to say recent, but I guess like Rush isn't that recent, but there's something you do with the sky and I wasn't sure, it, you, you see it in the Nevada nuclear test site scene, and I saw it a lot in Rush. And I'm not sure if it's something you do in post, or if it's something that you just do with like, with uh, indie filters or something in camera. But do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? The sky looks very almost surreal. I think something in my visual game, I've been thinking a little bit about this lately, because um I'm the same. I stitch myself up quite often in sets as a cinematographer because I love ceilings. I'm not particularly interested in the grounds. I'm not particularly interested in the floor. But I'm really fascinated by ceilings. So I very often kill my first life force <laughs> with my gaffer. <laughs> I say, well, there's still a ceiling in there. And we'll find out another way of doing it. And I did that a lot on the last films I've done. And in the same way, um, the sky to me is a ceiling. It's not, it's a, and certainly in, in radioactive, you know, skies, it's not, it's not, it's not nothing. It's something. You know, it's 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 atoms. You know, and I've become more and more absorbed by that, which is basically an intellectual thought. But so, yes, when I shot, it, it really struck me. I got very aggressive about it when I was making *The Hard to See*, actually, which was the film didn't do so well. It's the film I did for Warner's after with Ron Howard after. Oh yeah, it looks great though. Yeah, but what I do is I, I actually I am quite brutal and blatant about what I want to do in camera, and I invariably stick my finger or a bit of my fringe, you know, or part of my sandwich in front of the lens if it does the job. I like to I like to not 
knock the visual, visuals about, not not as an anarchic idiot, but uh, not with disrespect to our wonderful, you know, lens builders and you know manufacturers. But I like to get things happening in the lens in the moment, and I often put my fingers in front of the lens partially just to break it down. And in Rush, um, I was basically shooting most of Rush on a strip of asphalt about 150 yards long, 27 miles north west of London. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not a particularly sexy space to make a film <laughs> And I actually, I must say, I love Rush, and I think it, I think we got a bit from, I think a lot of people in Rush work very, very hard with very little money, and I think we made it look great. And I think we I think we got punished because I think certain people behind Rush went for a big release and they got hit hard because we got mm-hmm. greedy and it didn't work. I think if they released Rush as a real small umbrella release, I think a lot of us would maybe, maybe have done a bit better because... I went from being a songless, went from being a talk of the town to being whitewashed. But on that film, I wanted to vary that 150 yards of asphalt from 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 the Japanese Grand Prix to Monaco to the Brazilian. So I had to work really together with Post. But I did a lot. You know, when I get the weather and the weather comes, I go for it and I bring that sky down because for me it's a feeling and it's real. And I very rarely, like in the Harbour Sea, I very rarely let the skies pop unless I really want them to, and then they do pop. But I noticed when I was at sea a lot that there's very often an invisible overlay between the horizon, between the sea that you're being thrown around in, and the sky itself. And there are many painters, great painters, on your side of the pond who have painted beautiful seascapes, and Russian painters who've painted beautiful seascapes where there's no apparent horizon. So I started to get interested in this. And that happened in Russia, it happened in the the heart of the sea, and I do it quite a lot. So I do use graduation filters and I get special filters manufactured that help me with soft edges to bring the picture down. So from basically what I'm trying to do is fill the canvas of the frame a lot more with, not detail, but with with tonal qualities. And I want to mean? Mm-hmm. So I try to fill it in a way that painters work. You never see painters on canvas, which I agree is a different medium, but you never see painters burning out the top third of the picture because it's real. And a lot of cinema... So we see a lot of sea films, the sky burns out, or it's yeah. almost oh, it's almost white, or you know, I love to put it down so you feel you're you're on a planet that's real and you've got a roof above your head. And I think I did that quite a lot in um in uh, in um in radioactive as well. So you can hear that oh, I can't play that from the We just came. But uh, I that's basically how I work at the moment and it's maybe a phase um going through that. I think it's because I think probably without kind of adventures around them, a little bit more in terms of painting than I do in terms of conventional cinematography films. Who knows what would happen if I went to Greenland? Well, I, went, I don't know. <laughs> but I love, it's, it's quite interesting. I think off the cuff, I tell you, I love ceilings. I think that's an answer to I love a ceiling in a picture. Do you understand what I mean? And so I love to wrap it around the head of a, an actor or an actress and, you know, and I, and I I think it's quite interesting. That's why I love the high format. I love academy format. I love the large change film. I love headspace. I generally use a lot of headspace above actors, much more than many, many cinematographers. You know, it's just a matter of taste, but many cinematographers like to get in on the forehead and close-ups and, you know, bring the space down above the head. And a lot of directors comment on headspace. I, I work quite a lot with headspace. Uh, Anthony, the last thing I was going to ask you is uh, some of the nighttime street sequences... I got a little of Road to Perdition, a little bit of The Third Man. Um, tell me a little bit about some of those nighttime Paris shots. That's what you see if you say, because Road to Perdition, Conrad Hall, he's the closest I've ever had to a mentor and a personal friend. 
rest in peace. What a beautiful man and a master mm. and a beautiful human being. So thank you for that. And you know, I'll I'll, I'll receive Orson Welles and Susan Cain or whatever. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. I'll put that. But um, blindly. But um, again, night. We're shooting in um, you know, we're shooting you know Budapest as you probably know for Paris mostly. Um, I again, I just. I just um, decided on this film to push the sensitivity of the camera because I was using the big sensor, so I could push quite fast and get texture, feed a little bit of uh, atmosphere, a little bit of smoke in, and work a lot with fog in places, and just work a lot with atmosphere in night times. And what was at that time very important to remember that you're in either gas-lit towns, you know, it's again in that epoch where you were just going from gas lights and old you know, pre-Victorian systems of lighting to modern new systems of lighting. It was a very interesting time. All sorts of things, were, you know, were going on. So I think it really came from that. And I was looking for, I like the counter-colouring of like of a slightly cyan, cyan green in the night work in this period film. I looked at painting as well, actually. It sounds possible. I looked at Renoir and a lot of the French painters and some of the night paintings. And I just love those buildings, those high monarchic buildings sort of veins and playing out of focus in the background, you know, with mist and stuff like that. I think that's what, and I think the architecture of Budapest really inspired me. You just can't put so much focus on it because it looks like hungry. <laughs> yeah, you did a good job cheating that. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk, Anthony. I mean, it's it's, it's a beautiful film and I, I wish you the best of luck this Oscar season and uh, in the future with what you're working on with Danny, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, look, thank you so much, man. It's lovely to talk to you about the film. It's, it's very close to my heart, so I'm just pleased um, pleased that people even talk about the film. It's beautiful, and I'm very fond of my jam, so well done, and thank you very much indeed, and I'll try and do the best I can. And I'll watch out for those guys. I'll think of you next time I point the, the camera up in the sky and put a filter in. <laughs> okay. Thanks, man. All right. Enjoy yourself. Okay. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the cinematographer for Radioactive, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you are feeling generous, head on over to Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, leave us a comment, and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Radioactive is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, and it is for your consideration in all categories, including best cinematography. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? 
Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.